Good evening. Okay. Well, good evening. It is a blessing, as always, to be together on a Wednesday evening. And as the weather gets nicer, I get happier. I'm usually a pretty happy guy to begin with, but when the weather gets nice, I'm even happier with that. So hopefully you had a chance to get out today. It was kind of a nice day in the 60s, which is, hey, we'll take it in March, right? This evening, we continue in our series of studies in the book of Job. And there is a lot of reading associated with uh, the book of Job and studies in this portion of the book of Job, especially from chapter 3 on to the end of the book. And we are in chapter 6 this evening. And what I'm going to do is try to get through just the three chapters, 6, 7, and 8, and really just highlight a few of the themes. Uh, We've been going through a series or a cycle of debate. We started the first cycle of debate with Job and his three friends. And last week we saw that Job was complaining, obviously, about his state, his circumstances. And then one of his friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, began to uh, challenge him. And what Eliphaz essentially said, that he believed, he had a philosophy, that the truly innocent in life never perish and the truly upright are never destroyed. Now that philosophy is, as we saw last, uh, last week, performance thinking performance thinking, sometimes called legalism. And performance thinking is that if you do everything right, no bad will ever happen to you. And that's all well and good until you're doing the right thing and bad things happen to you, which is the experience of life. And a lot of people who believe this, who are are raised sometimes in the church to believe this, they have a hard time reconciling their bad or tragic circumstances with their having served God. And they become discouraged in their faith because they've believed that the truly innocent never perish and the truly upright are never destroyed. And in this, he was rebuking Job, Eliphaz was rebuking Job, and basically blaming him for his circumstances, blaming his own actions for his suffering. And all that was going on here really essentially was a philosophy that is flawed in the mind of Eliphaz the Temanite. So what little comfort he brought Uh, well, I mean, basically no comfort at all, to his friend Job. And then we're going to see that this evening Job is going to respond to that, and then we're going to see that his other friend Bildad also makes an attempt to remedy his suffering. And so that's what we're going to cover this evening. Let's open in a word of prayer. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you give us understanding of your word. We thank you that we can gather together in your name, hear from you, and even from a a book that has some pretty dark moments in it, we can learn to trust you, because all of us have dark moments in our lives. Life is certainly not free from suffering or difficulty or pain or tragedy. And as we hopefully don't experience much of this in life, but as we do experience difficulties and trials in life, we need to cling ever more to you. And our faith in you needs to increase through those circumstances. And the only way that our faith is going to increase is through the study of your word, for faith comes by hearing the word of God. So give us your word this evening and encourage us in our faith in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, as I mentioned last week when we began this section of this book, I'm going to read larger sections and then we're going to kind of come back over it and recap the major themes. The poetry of the book of Job is 
reiteration. It is stating something over and over again in different ways, poetically, to make a point. So if it sounds redundant, it's because the poetic form is redundant. By definition, Hebrew poetry is a restating of the same thing over and over again in creative ways. So it's not just repetition, it's reiteration. It's the idea, I'm going to say something, then I'm going to elaborate on it, I'm going to say it a number of different ways, then I'm going to move on to the next section and say something else again in a number of different ways. So it's the idea of, uh, we go out of our way sometimes to be concise and direct and to the point. This would be the antithesis. This would be sort of poetically describing something in as many words as you can possibly use and still retain some beauty of language. The closest English form that I would use, to just kind of give you an idea, it's not a precise uh, parallel, but would be Shakespeare. If you're familiar with William Shakespeare's writings, you know that many times it's difficult to understand what his characters are saying in Old English, but as they say it over and over again and then even act it out, even though you may not understand each and every word or each and every phrase, after a while you get the point. And the point of Shakespeare is it's just beautiful poetry. His, his uh, poetry does, to a certain extent, rhyme and has a beautiful cadence. This does not, but it's the same idea of saying something a number of different ways with very poetic and dramatic language. So I'm going to start by reading just verses 1 through 7 of chapter 6. And in this, this is Job now responding to what we read and studied last week. He's responding to the instruction of Eliphaz. And he's answering Eliphaz's charge against him. And you'll remember that the charge of Eliphaz was, in fact, just you're suffering because you have unconfessed sin in your life. That's what Eliphaz had to say. You you, you need to repent of your unconfessed sin and be restored. You need to get right with God in order to be blessed. That's the counsel of Eliphaz. And it's misguided and it's wrong. But here's what Job had to say about it. In chapter 6, in verse 1, Then Job replied, If only my anguish could be weighed and all my misery be placed on the scales, it would surely outweigh the sand of the seas. No wonder my words have been impetuous. The arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks in their poison. God's terrors are marshaled against me. Does a wild donkey bray when it has grass? Or an ox bellow when it has fodder? Is tasteless food eaten without salt? Or is there flavor in the white of an egg? I refuse to touch it. Such food makes me ill. Very poetic way of essentially saying, Job saying, that he feels that his extreme suffering justifies his complaints. See, he feels he has a right to complain about his life because he is, he is suffering extremely. Going back two weeks ago and then uh, three weeks ago, we saw that God allowed Satan to afflict Job. First, the first test took place. Job lost all of his earthly possessions and his children. The wife abandoned him. And and then, in the second test, in chapter 2, he lost his health. He was afflicted with a loathsome disease, something like leprosy, where there were boils all over his body from his head to his foot. And so as he's sitting there in the ashes, repenting, and not repenting, excuse me, mourning in a place of, of, of just crying out before God. 
he is approached by these three friends who come and sit with him for seven days, and then they begin to speak. And what they're trying to do is fix him. They're trying to figure out why this is happening. And that's what the book of Job, at least this portion of the book of Job, is all about. So what Job is saying, you know, he was, he was rebuked for complaining by Eliphaz, but he feels that his extreme suffering justifies his complaint with life. Why should I be happy with my life? Look at my life, he might say. And he says it in a number of different ways here. Again, the poetry, using a wild donkey, or, or as he said, uh, an ox. Yeah, sure, I'm opening my mouth. Why? Because I have need to open my mouth. I'm going through such a difficult time. And then, in verse 8, obviously he said this before, but he wants to die. But he wants to die in a just state before God. He doesn't want to die in unrighteousness. He wants to die in righteousness. But he does want to die, and I've already shared with you some of the things he's experienced, which should help you to understand why he doesn't want to live anymore. You know, I heard it said that people who are depressed don't necessarily want to take their own life. They just don't want to live anymore. And that's a pretty good description of someone who's really depressed and just is despairing of life. It's not that they necessarily want to take their own life. That's sort of a different thing, you know? But it's, they just don't want to live anymore. They just don't want to get up anymore. There's nothing that they have to live for that they feel they have to live for. And so they become depressed, and this oftentimes leads to perhaps a person wanting to take their own life. But generally, it starts with just not wanting to get up every day, not wanting to live. And people who experience depression know all too well that that's exactly how you feel. In this case, you can understand why Job might be depressed. Let's see what it says here in verses 8 through 10. He says, oh, that I might have my request, that God would grant what I hope for, that God would be willing to crush me. You might say, well, Job, you've already been crushed. No, he means taken out. Let, to, to crush me, to let loose his hand and cut me off. Then I would still have this consolation, my joy in unrelenting pain that I had not denied the words of the Holy One. So he's saying, if I die now, at least I know I die upright before God. Now, his friends are thinking, you did something to deserve this. And he's essentially defending himself and his integrity. And he's saying, I haven't done anything. Not yet. I haven't, I haven't cursed God. I haven't done anything I regret. But I do regret that I'm still alive. Essentially what he's saying. And then he goes on to let us know. At this point, he's given up hope of restoration. And I want to just point this out as we go through this. It is easy in this world today to give up hope. But it depends on what your hope is in. We've been talking on Sunday mornings uh, about the last days as we've studied the book of Revelation. And we've learned and understood that we have a lot to be hopeful for. But there are a lot of difficult things this world is going to go through before we experience what Paul says is, is the blessed hope of his appearing. That hope will be realized, but not yet. And so a lot of people are starting to lose hope. Now, Christians should not lose hope at all, but some Christians are starting to lose hope because things are so dark. They're having to take their kids out of public school because you can't even leave them there. There used to be a time where there was a choice. Well, do I want my children to be homeschooled? Do I want my children to uh, go to parochial school or, or private school or Christian school? Or do I like my school system and do I want them to stay in the public school system? And um, I am the product of public school education. My dad was a public school teacher for 38 years before he retired. Many of you and many of the people in our church are public school teachers. 
But things have become so difficult. The environment in our world has become so challenging that you hesitate as a parent to just blindly send your kids to public school anymore because we all know the crazy things that are being taught. It's not even really teaching. It's indoctrination of wickedness. And, and so a lot of parents are starting to despair. And then, you know, we look at our, our, our world and the things that are going on from the top of our government down, and we can become very hopeless. And yet, one of the things we need to remember is that there is always the hope of restoration. For us personally, even in our culture, things have been bad. They've gotten better. Then they sometimes get worse, and they sometimes get better. And uh, as I've been reading the newspaper, I I don't really watch news anymore, but I do read the newspaper online. What I do, and when I look at the news, there are a lot of good stories out there. You don't always get the chance to read them, but there are a lot of things to be hopeful for. There are a lot of dark stories and a lot of difficult things to read, but there are also a number of very encouraging signs in our culture today that people are starting to wake up and realize we we really need to return to morality and sanity. So Job has reached a place where he has given up hope of ever being restored. That's why he wants to die, or at least doesn't want to live anymore. So we read in verses 11 through 13, he says, What strength do I have? that I should still hope? What prospects that I should be patient? Do I have the strength of stone? Is my flesh bronze? Do I have any power to help myself now that success has been driven from me? Then he goes on to complain about the unfaithfulness of his friends. And by unfaithfulness, what he means is, you know, they came there to comfort him, and now they're accusing him, or at least Eliphaz has accused him of doing something wrong to bring all this tragedy into his life. So he goes on in verse 14 to say, A despairing man should have the devotion of his friends, even though he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. Now, he's not saying he has forsaken God, but he's saying even if he does, he should have the devotion of his friends. But my brothers are as undependable as intermittent streams, as the streams that overflow when darkened by thawing ice and swollen with melting snow, but that cease to flow in the dry season and in the heat vanish from their channels. Caravans turn aside from their roots. They go up into the wasteland and perish. The caravans of Tema, and, and, and it's interesting it would say Tema, uh, Eliphaz was a Temanite, but the caravans of Tema look for water. The traveling merchants of Sheba look in, in, in hope And they are distressed because they had been confident they arrived there only to be disappointed. He's describing a caravan looking for water the way that he was looking for comfort and devotion from his friends. Now you too have proved to be of no help. You see something dreadful and are afraid. Have I ever said, give something on my behalf, pay a ransom for me from your wealth, deliver me from the hand of the enemy, raise me or ransom me from the clutches of the ruthless? Did I ask you for anything? And, and, and what they're essentially realizing is Job wasn't looking for his friends to try and fix him. He was just simply grateful for their presence and their comfort. Those seven days when they said nothing were more valuable than the moment that Eliphaz started to speak. So he's essentially recognizing they've been unfaithful. And then he goes on and he challenges them. To show him his fault. If, if you think you know what's wrong with me, tell me. You keep saying there's something wrong with me, something I need to repent of, something I need to confess. Well, what is it? Point it out to me. Verse 24. 
Teach me and I will be quiet. Show me where I have been wrong. How painful are honest words. Well, what do your arguments prove? Do you mean to correct what I say and treat the words of a despairing man as wind? You would even cast lots for the fatherless and barter away your friend. So, he's, I mean, he's really disappointed in, at least in Eliphaz, but certainly in all of his friends, for not being there, not supporting him. To be faithful to someone who's a friend is to not immediately accuse them in the way that Eliphaz certainly accused Job. Then he goes on to plead with them to trust in his character. The thing that Job is struggling with now, he's lost everything. The only thing he has left is his integrity. It's all he has. And his friends are trying to take that away by questioning his character. And all he's asking his friends to do is, please, trust my character. Trust my integrity. Trust in who I am. At least give me that. At least acknowledge that I am the man that I've always been. And don't assume that I've done wrong. And so we read in verse 28. But now, be so kind as to look at me. Would I lie to your face? Relent, do not be unjust. Reconsider, for my integrity is at stake. Or another interpretation might be, my righteousness still stands. I'm still the same guy you've always known. Is there any wickedness on my lips? That is, have I said anything wicked? Can my mouth not discern malice? I know I haven't said anything wrong. He challenges them. Show me what I've said wrong. So he's pushing back. Essentially, this is a cycle of debate. Job is now pushed back against Eliphaz. Now, Eliphaz took a shot, and now in this cycle of debate, Bildad, the Shuite, is going to also have something to say. He's going to attempt to remedy Job's suffering. His philosophy is a little different than Eliphaz, but still the same. They're still blaming Job for his circumstances. Let's read verses 1 through 7. I'm sorry, um, one through five. Actually, actually, Job, Job's got a little bit more to say. I, I got ahead of myself. Jo, uh, Bildad doesn't uh, start until eight. In this section, he continues. I, I apologize. I didn't realize he's going to continue through chapter seven here. Uh, let's look at verses one through five. Does not man have hard service on the earth? So what Job is doing is he's continuing this complaint and he's making his point that things are difficult. Are not his days like those of a hired man? Like a slave longing for the evening shadows, or a hired man waiting eagerly for his wages. So I have been allotted months of futility. So we know this has been going on for some time now. And nights of misery have been assigned to me. When I lie down, I think, how long before I get up? The night drags on and I toss till dawn. My body is clothed with worms and scabs. My skin is broken and festering. So now, after having kind of pushed back at his friends, now he kind of looks inward a little bit. And he begins to complain. So he's not so much answering his friends at this point. He's complaining again, which is going to cause Bildad to answer or respond. Life is extremely difficult for Job. It's, it's extremely difficult to begin with. Have you figured that out? Life can be tough. You know, when you're young, when you're a child, or in your teenage years, or even your, your early 20s, you look at life differently than you do when you get a little bit older and a little bit more cynical, Right? I mean, you've lived enough by the time you're in your 40s or 50s to recognize that, you know, just because you want life to be a certain way doesn't mean it's going to be that way. Uh, when you're young, you kind of hope something and believe it, it's possible, you know, optimistic, uh, idealistic. And then you get a little bit older and 
go through a few times of disappointment and tragedy and trials and difficulty and hardships, and you start to learn that maybe it's not always, you know, life is not always the way you want it to be. Hopefully you don't become cynical to the point where you just assume everything's going to go badly. But it's a lot easier as you get older to become cynical. Here's what's happening. Job is coming to this conclusion. His life has been extremely difficult. At least for the last several months, it has been very difficult. And so he feels in saying this, that he has a right to express himself. And he would prefer that his friends just listen. And of course, we know they're, they're, not, they're not quick to listen and slow to speak, right? That's the problem. Um, but anyway, and then he goes on to say, you know, not only is life difficult, it's brief and then it's over. A 20-year-old doesn't say that. Life is brief and then it's over. A 50 or 60-year-old says life is brief and then it's over. Because, you know, as you get older, you look at your life and you think, oh, my goodness, I remember like five years ago, like it was like just a week ago. What's going on? Where's the time going, you know? It's a different perspective. And certainly when you're suffering or going through tragedies, you know, you think this way. And so life is brief and then it's quickly over. Verse 6, he says it this way. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle. Now, if you've ever seen anyone weave on a loom, that, that shuttle, the, the, the moving piece that, that does the weaving moves very quickly. You have to be careful. You can really get injured. Uh, in, in an ancient loom, that, that would move very quickly as they would weave. And so he's saying, my days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle. And they come to an end without hope. Remember, O God, that my life is but a breath, and my eyes will never see happiness again. The eye that now sees me will see me no longer. You will look for me, but I will be no more. As a cloud vanishes and is gone, so he who goes down to the grave does not return. He will never come to his house again. His place will know him no more. That's a man who's depressed. That's a man who's lost hope. Now remember, I've mentioned this before. When we get to the end of this book, God makes it very clear that these guys didn't know what they were talking about. So a lot of what Job says is, from his perspective, the truth, but it's actually not, because when we get to the end of the book, his end is better than his beginning. Everything he said there is actually not true. But right now, it looks like that's what's going to happen. That's how he feels, okay? A lot of this is poetry. It's how he feels. He's emoting. It doesn't mean it's real. It is an accurate assessment of how Job feels. It's just not true. In reality, God is going to do something greater than his experience up till that point. And so, life is brief, and then it's quickly over. And then he justifies his complaint to God and his despairing of life. He goes on to say, look, I have a right to feel this way. And in verse 11, therefore I will not keep silent. I will speak out in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I the sea or the monster of the deep? that you put me under guard. When I think my bed will comfort me and my couch will ease my complaint, even then you frighten me, speaking to his friends, you frighten me with dreams and terrify me with visions. Now, that was a time when Eliphaz was sharing the dreams and the visions he had, and that kind of frightened him. And it's also possible that he's speaking of the dreams and the visions that he's having at night when he does get a chance to sleep. But certainly he's under a very... um, difficult time, and so his dreams, it would make sense that they would be filled with all types of anguish and terrifying visions. Uh, But he says, so that I prefer strangling and death rather than this body of mine. 
I despise my life and I would not live forever. Let me alone. My days have no meaning. I mean, he's, he's in the pit of despair. He really is. He's really just lost hope. And uh, he wants to express this. And he really just needs his friends to listen. But then he goes on to cry out to God for understanding in his suffering because ultimately he wants to understand what in the world is happening to me? What am I going through? And why has God allowed this? Verse 17, what is man that you make so much of him, that you give him so much attention, that you examine him every morning and test him every moment? Will you never look away from me or let me alone even for an instant? If I have sinned, what Have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you made me your target? Have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my offenses and forgive my sins? For I will soon lie down in the dust. You will search for me, and I will be no more. I'm about to die, essentially. I would like to understand why it is that you've allowed this to happen to me. Now, very few Christians will admit that they feel this way when they're going through a difficult time. And if they are going to admit it, they're only going to admit it either to God or to those they're very close to. A lot of people put up a front. They pretend, you know, how you doing, brother? Oh, I'm fine. I'm I'm okay. But I've always admired the person who's honest, sometimes brutally honest, and can open up their heart and be honest about what they're going through and even, even pour out their complaint before the Lord if necessary. That's part of the healing process, to express your emotions before God, not to curse God, not to blame God, but to to open up your heart as to what you're feeling. In fact, many people today will not express how they feel, so they become unhealthy. They internalize, and then they start to have all types of neurotic behavior, which is the result of not being honest with yourself and with others about your pain. Eventually, they go to someone and they'll speak to them. And if it's not a pastor or a friend, maybe it's a counselor or a therapist. And in the process of talking about what they're going through and honestly expressing their pain, lo and behold, they start to get better. Why is that? Is it the magic or the mystery of having someone who listens to you and helps you to figure out? Not so much. It's actually just the process of emoting and expressing your feelings. God has designed us to be honest and to open our hearts with him and with others about how we feel. And when you don't do that, you bottle it up, it starts to destroy you from within. Psychologically, emotionally, physically. You start to feel the effects of not opening your heart up to God and to others. And, you know, I was just talking to someone recently. We were speaking. We were having a conversation. They are speaking about a family member to me, and I'm not going to mention any major details, but one of the things that this person expressed is that they had a family member that really needs help, but that this person resists help at every turn, doesn't want to talk about their feelings, doesn't want to talk about their trauma or anything they've been with, uh, been through, or, or, or any, anything that's happened uh, to them. And because of that, they're, they're really expressing psychotic almost behavior, it, it, really unhealthy behavior. But nothing this family can do will help this person to realize you need to talk to someone. You need to express how you're feeling. You need to process this pain. And there is some suspicion of some trauma that this person experienced, some abuse this person experienced early on in their life. But because they've never talked about it and are unwilling to confront or discuss it, 
they're becoming more and more unhealthy emotionally and mentally. And that broke my heart and made me think about this. The one thing you have to give Job is that he's not holding back. He's expressing how he feels. So I just want to use that as an encouragement. Maybe you're going through a difficult time. And if you don't have someone to talk to, pray that God would open up an opportunity for you to express yourself with someone you're close to and someone you trust, someone who will listen and not judge you like maybe Job's friends did. And I think, it, you know, I looked up uh, a particular personality disorder that, that I suspect someone has. And uh, it's interesting. They go through the whole description of it, which to me fit to a T. And then as I looked at it, I said, well, what's the cure? They said, there really is no cure. I thought, boy, that's a lot of hope. And it just basically said talk therapy. That was the, that was the conclusion. You need to talk about it. And that's pretty amazing because, you know what, with all the advanced degrees that some of these people have, they realize, well, we can't fix anybody. You just need to talk about it. But with Christians in a relationship with God, we not only talk about it, we hear from God. And God speaks to our hearts and brings healing. So we do have an answer, even if the Mayo Clinic doesn't. We have an answer. And that answer is Jesus Christ. Amen? And we'll get to some of this study. You'll see that Job realizes that God is his answer. He's not saying God isn't the answer. He's just trying to figure it out. He's trying to figure out, why am I going through this, God? And, and you've got to give him this. At least he's speaking to the right person, God himself. Okay, so now after he expresses all of this, Bildad, I got ahead of myself back, back at the end of chapter 6, but now Bildad is going to respond to Job's defending himself and his complaint. He's going to attempt to remedy Job's suffering. First thing he does, he bluntly rebukes Job for his complaining. He basically says, don't complain. Now think about that. Just don't complain. Well, why are you talking about it? Keep it to yourself. The very opposite of what we just talked about bringing health into your life, he says, yeah, you shouldn't say anything. You shouldn't talk about your feelings. You know, there's a generation of people that grew up before my generation that learned and were actually taught early on, don't talk about your feelings. Don't express that. That's negative. You don't want to talk about that. People that fought in and lived through the world wars and even went through the Great Depression, uh, a lot of those people just bottled it up and never talked about it and never tried to process it, you know, for better or for worse. But that's, that's what happened. So, you know, that's not a good thing. And we see that. But this is what Bildad has to say. Let's look at verses 1 through 7. Then Bildad the Shuite replied, How long will you say such things? Your words are a blustering wind. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. Now, that's harsh. But if you will look to God and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright. Even now he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your rightful place. Your beginnings will seem humble, so prosperous will your future be. So Bildad feels that Job just needs to stop complaining, stop emoting, stop expressing yourself, acknowledge you did something Confess it, get it over with, and be restored. And that God will restore you, but because you're holding on to your pride and your integrity, that's why you're suffering. Not just that you did something wrong, 
or sinful, but that you're holding on to your integrity. Now, the problem here is, just like Eliphaz was wrong in suggesting that Job had sinned to do something to bring about his suffering, Bildad is suggesting that Job is holding on to his integrity and has no right to hold on to his integrity. Truth is, we know that Job was a man of integrity, a man of character. He hadn't done anything wrong, and he knows that, but his friends are doubting that, and that's where Bildad is coming from. See, Bildad cannot reconcile that a just God would allow a righteous man to suffer. He unkindly proclaims that Job's children were killed because they were sinners. Oh, the reason your ten children died is because they were sinners. And he encourages Job to confess his alleged sin before God and be restored. Denounce your integrity. Stop pretending you're a man of character. And then he instructs Job concerning his current suffering. And in verse 8, here's his speech. Ask the former generations and find out what their fathers learned. For we were born only yesterday and know nothing, and our days on earth are but a shadow. Will they not instruct you and tell you? Will they not bring forth words from their understanding? And then he goes on to give us a very poetic example. Can papyrus grow tall where there is no marsh? Can reeds thrive without water? While still growing and uncut, they wither more quickly than grass. Such is the destiny of all who forget God. So perishes the hope of the godless. What he trusts in is fragile. What he relies on is a spider's web. He leans on his web, but it gives way. He clings to it, but it does not hold. He is like a well-watered plant in the sunshine, spreading its shoots over the garden. It entwines its roots around a pile of rocks and looks for a place among the stones. But when it is torn from its spot, that place disowns it and says, I never saw you. Surely its life withers away, and from the soil other plants grow. Again, very dramatic and poetic language. But essentially, he's making this much clear. History and ancient wisdom justify Bildad's position. He's essentially saying, look, you ask people in the past and you look at history, everything I'm saying is true. You see, Job, he might say, the reason you're suffering, the blame for your suffering is you've forgotten God. You have forgotten God. Not just sinned against God, you've forgotten God. What a harsh rebuke. And not true. He accuses him of trusting in his own integrity and not in God. Now, a person that trusts in their integrity and not in God is a person who's proud. And so what he's saying is, you're too proud, Job. That's the problem. That's your sin. Your sin is that you're proud. And because you're so proud and you hold on to your integrity and you're not willing to admit you're at fault, that's why you're suffering, Job. You're suffering because you're proud. And again, not true. And he describes him as stubborn and unwilling to admit that he's wrong. All of that we read there when he talks about being a well-watered plant in the sunshine, spreading its roots and stuff. He's very just stubborn. And he uses that example there. But stubborn. You're unwilling to listen. You're unwilling to admit you're wrong. And again, Job was not wrong. Job was a man of integrity. And that was what made it so difficult. To suffer and know you've done nothing to deserve it and to know you're still a person of integrity 
and then have your friends suggest you're not, that's a suffering in and all itself, right? He hadn't forgotten God. He was trying to understand why he was suffering, and he was asking God to explain it to him. And then finally, what Bildad does is offer him hope. And this is the hope he offers him in the midst of his suffering. Verses 20 through 22. Surely God does not reject a blameless man or strengthen the hands of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouts of joy. Your enemies will be clothed in shame and the tents of the wicked will be no more. See, Bill, that is a very simplistic way of looking at life. He's got it all figured out. Just humble yourself before God. Recognize you're not the man you think you are. Recognize that you have failed to be the person that you think you are. Humiliate yourself before God. Take responsibility for your suffering, and God will restore you. Now, there are some cases where that might be the truth. Just like what Eliphaz said, sometimes we sin and we bring suffering into our life. But before these cycles of debate begin, we get a view into heaven and we understand what God said to Satan about Job. And so that helps us to understand what these men are suggesting just simply isn't true. Remember what God said to Satan. Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And even after his suffering, we read in verse 22 of chapter 1, and all this Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. And then at the end of his second test in chapter 2, it says, and all this Job did not sin in what he said. So thinking of what Bildad had to say here, Bildad testified that God is just in dealing with men, which is true. He is. And he testifies to God's mercy in dealing with righteous men, and indeed he is. And he also testified to God's judgment in dealing with wicked men, which is true. But what do you do when God allows the righteous to suffer? Bildad has no room in his philosophy for that eventuality. There's no place in his worldview where a person who's righteous can suffer. So what do you do with that? See, the book of Job is mostly about trying to determine why do the righteous suffer? What's God's purpose in suffering? And what these comforters or these counselors or these these friends of Job bring out are all the different misconceptions about suffering in the life of someone of integrity and, and a person who's righteous and upright. So as we listen to their speeches, we see the different theories about why people suffer. And then we have Job complaining and his friends trying to fix it, trying to explain or give us an understanding as to why. But, you know, it's it's poetically reminiscent of our lives because as you suffer, as I suffer, as we suffer, there are lots of people who will immediately come to the wrong conclusion. Make sure that as your relationship with God goes that you are upright, and where you're not, confess it and be honest. But understand, just confessing your sin isn't going to fix everything and make it all better. Just, you know, humbling yourself in your pride isn't going to fix everything and make it all better either. Suffering is a way of life. God has a purpose in suffering for the unrighteous, but also for the righteous. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. You give us such understanding in your word and through your word. And on this difficult subject, on this difficult topic, we recognize that uh, we don't have all the answers. In fact, we know very little. 
There's so little we understand or know about why we go through difficulty, why we go through trials, and why we go through suffering. I guess the most important thing we can learn up to this point in this study is to trust you. And even when everyone else doesn't understand us, we know that you understand us and that we can understand your ways through your word. But there are going to be times where it just doesn't make any sense. And that's where we have to cling to you and put our faith in you even more. Give us the strength and the ability to do so, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.